I just took off my coat because I know I'm going to be hot. But it's not because I'm so spiritual. Back home, I notice people in the audience talking when the preacher takes off his coat or starts undoing his tie about, boy, he's really bringing it down from the Lord. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is so much more than than an emotion. He is so much more than excitement. In fact, some of the greatest times that I feel the Holy Spirit are times when there's no room for fleshly excitement because I'm so overcome by who He is. And I want to say again something similar to what I said last night. I'm thankful that a lot of those routines that distract from true worship of the Lord that are so prevalent back in Tennessee are not as prevalent in this church. I say that to your credit and to the praise of God. Thank you. I'm glad that Brother Jason doesn't feel like he has to talk for 15 minutes about how long we've known each other and how great I am. And he just shakes my hand and walks away and doesn't say anything. I'm not being funny. The first night he introduced me, but there's a place for a bunch of words and there's a place to leave them behind. And he knows I have a message on my heart to preach and it's okay to leave behind the routine. That touches my heart. Thank you. Before I do go any further, I, I just I want to say, because I, I was too overcome last night uh, to mention it, but thank you so much for that meal um, <clears throat> the other evening. Amen. Delicious. Um, I think I ate three portions, and I'm thankful. Thank you <laughs> for your hospitality, for your continued love, and, and I'm just really enjoying being here. I want to read a little bit of a more lengthy passage of Scripture tonight. I haven't done that yet this week. And if you feel like it, anybody who feels like it, I would like for you to stand while I read. I don't hardly ever do this, but I feel like it would be good tonight. If you'd go ahead and stand, if you'd be willing. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 16. Beginning in the first verse, and I'm getting you to stand partly because I really want you to listen. And I'm going to take a little bit longer to read it than maybe I usually would. 1 Samuel 16, beginning in the first verse. I'll give you just another minute to get there if you're reading along. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spoke, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. 
And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this one. Again Jesse made seven more of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are these all of thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keeps the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and with all of a beautiful countenance and godly, goodly, excuse me, goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's verse 1 through 14 of 1 Samuel 16. You can sit down. Thank you for that. I hope maybe it helped a little bit with the attention. This is what the Lord's put on my heart tonight. The Lord looks on the heart. I've been trying to preach this week, and I'm sure if you've gone to this church or any other true church, you've heard lots of sermons about how there are things that God can do, and there are things that we can do with the Lord's help. There are many things that God expects for His people to do, but there are even more things that we're completely powerless to do, and we must rely on Him. And this is a story, I want to... Draw a contrast between King Saul and future King David. And just tell a little bit of the background to remind us. God had in His plan, as I tried to preach about last night, a way to bring a Messiah, a Savior, a Deliverer into the world to rescue His people from their sins. Part of that plan required that God would uh, select by His grace, and set apart a people for Him that the lineage of the Messiah could come through. The significance in God selecting Abraham, have you ever thought about that? You might, if you haven't thought about it, you might just think, well, the Jews are God's special people. God picked Abraham because he was a Jew. There weren't any Jews when God picked Abram. They didn't exist yet. As far as I can tell, the Lord, in His omnipotence and in His sovereignty, which means He can do whatever He wants, looked down in His grace and saw Abram as a man with a heart that would be pliable to the workings of the Spirit of God. As I read Scripture, when God chose Abram, he wasn't even saved yet. And isn't it that way for all of us? When God first calls us to Himself and draws us to Himself, we don't even know Him in the free pardon of sin yet. We don't know Him in that close fellowship yet. It is that first calling that uh, He draws us to Him with His own Spirit and we have an opportunity to surrender. And I think that's what happened when God first spoke to Abram like He does to all of us. 
I don't have time to get into when he uh, became saved or, or didn't. That's a, we could have a conversation about that. But the point is, we see in Abram a man that God chose by his grace. He gave him instruction. We see obedience. God basically told him, go that direction. I'll tell you when you get there. And again, we see a parallel to what it takes for salvation. God begins dealing in your heart. He begins moving you. He begins calling you to a place that you've never been before. An understanding of a condition you've never experienced before that is called separation from God. You realize that the fellowship that maybe you thought you had before is broken and there's something wrong. When you realize that, God gives you clear direction about what you need to do. And the only way to be saved is to obey. Yeah. Obedience in this context is not a righteous work. But it is a prerequisite to salvation. Right. You can't be saved unless you obey. And as I mentioned last night, God commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent is the uh, foundational obedience to God. And so God tells Abram, and this is the same kind of faith that it takes for a person to be saved. He says, go that direction. <laughs> Where am I going? I'll tell you when you get there. It's the same way when a person seeks the Lord. He begins to deal with them. They don't know exactly what they need to give up. They don't know exactly what they need to say. They don't know if they need to go to the altar or pray where they are. But God draws their heart and they make a move toward Him. And He keeps drawing, He keeps nudging, He keeps working with them. And they keep going. And He keeps saying, just go, just go, just go. I'll tell you when you get there. You know when you know you get there? You have peace. God made a great nation out of Abraham. And it went all the way, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... Jacob and his sons, and uh, I won't get into the whole lineage, but there came a time when God had set apart these people for so many generations, and they looked around at the nations around them and said, all these other nations have kings, we want to be like them. And they demanded of God to have an earthly king. And God complied, gave them what they wanted. The Lord still does that with us sometimes. He knows what's best for us. He knows His great purpose and plan for our lives. And if we ask Him enough, sometimes He gives us what we want anyway. Even though He has a better plan. They did that. They prayed for a king. God gave him a king. God gave him a man of physical stature who was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. Brother Paul took us out on the dunes today and... Um, for some reason, my mother got a, a picture and I was on this side of him and we were close to the same height and she said, get on the other side. I'm not sure why, but it was a big step down like this and in the picture of him, he looks seven feet tall and I look five feet tall. <laughs> He's taller than me, but not two feet taller. But in reality, Saul was head and shoulders, a foot and a half or maybe more taller than the average Israelite. They picked the man. All that the human flesh, all that the carnal eye could offer, they picked him. He was from a, a pretty good family. He was apparently smart enough. He was strong enough. He was king of material. That's what they wanted. Saul was two years into his reign. The armies of Israel were encamped at Michmash against their enemy. And Saul had been commanded by the prophet Samuel. Wait for me. I'll come here. It'll be seven days. I'll come. I'll make the sacrifice. Don't go to battle until I do. 
Saul waits seven days. Samuel doesn't show up. He takes it upon himself to make a sacrifice he's not authorized to make. Samuel gets there just as he's finished making the sacrifice. And he tells him, the kingdom is going to be ripped from your hands because you have done foolishly. If you read uh, in that uh, chapter about what was going on in Israel, it says all the people were following Saul trembling. They were terrified. He took it upon himself, just like the worldly kings around him. He looked at a problem. He said, how can I solve this? And he used his little dirt man brain. The dirt man is Adam that God created out of the dirt. Not nearly as smart as God. He used his little brain and decided what would work. And he said, well, the appointed one of God's not here yet. I will serve as his substitute and make this sacrifice. It's the stupidest thing he could have done. And even in that picture, we see that there is a way that God has ordained a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that He has put in place that can't be replaced by anything else. And even in that picture, we see what the sacrifice of Jesus to come would be like. It can't be replaced by anybody else. God appointed for Samuel to make those sacrifices during that time in Israel, and nobody else could do it. He was a few minutes late, according to Saul's concept of time. How many times do we take into our hands the destiny of our own lives because we thank God He's a few minutes late, He's not moving fast enough, things aren't happening fast enough. I tried to preach the other night about the man who throws seed out in the field and it starts growing and he goes to bed and he wakes up and he goes to bed and he wakes up and every day he can't see anything happening and then poof, one day there's a plant. And the very worst thing he could do is come dig up the dirt and see what's happening under the dirt. Preach a whole sermon about that. But that's exactly what Saul did. How can I take this upon me to make it happen? All the control you have of your life is an illusion. If you haven't yet learned that, and you really want to draw close to the Lord, you'll find it out. Saul found it out. Samuel tells him, you've done foolishly, you haven't kept the commandment of the Lord, which God has commanded you. If you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded. Listen, all God cares about from his children is obedience. That's it. Not rules and regulations. Obedience. God doesn't see as man sees. God sometimes does things a little differently than we would expect. God's not a legalist. In fact, if you look at Jesus, who was the image of God in bodily form, he was the biggest rebel I've ever seen. He completely destroyed the religious expectations of all the rulers around him. He did. And we see that in the story that I read in in, in our scripture reading this evening, that God told Samuel, go down here and do this for me. He says, I can't, the people will kill me. And so God says, well, just tell them you're making a sacrifice. 
He didn't go down there to make a sacrifice. God made a way, a side way, to give Samuel an opportunity to tell the people why he was there, which wasn't the whole truth. In fact, it wasn't even the point. You think God's a legalist? What I'm trying to tell us is God has a purpose and a way. And when He says, obey me, He's not talking about the letter of the law. He's talking about your heart being submissive before Him. Sometimes it matters what it actually looks like on the outside that you're doing, but always foundationally is the condition of your heart. You can look to everybody around you as if you are serving God and He knows your true heart and whether you are or not. I want to give you an example of that that I use sometimes. Imagine that you're in a kingdom where the king is passing by and the town crier goes with the king as Harold is telling all the people the king's passing by, bow down. And all the people all around bow down and maybe this king is despised by some of his subjects and there's some people bowing down who are in bodily form on their knees and on their face. Prostrate before the king like this. And in their hearts they're cursing him and they're saying how terrible he is. Are they really worshiping the king? No. But his servants can't tell. Let's say there's a man or a woman in some type of wheelchair. The king comes by and his herald says bow down. And maybe she has some type of condition of her joints where her body can't bend. Her spine is ankylosed where it's all frozen together and she actually cannot bow. And she sits there with tears running down her face. Because she's old enough, she remembers what the kingdom was like before this king arrived. And she knows the good things that he's done. And if he's a wise king, he looks over and maybe a servant's about to grab her and start beating her. And he looks over and sees her tears dropping and he says, no, I know her heart. That's worship. Jesus sees the heart. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the dividing asunder soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus Christ is the Word. I mentioned this the other night, but you can read that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. You go a little lower in that chapter, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And that very same living Word who became flesh in the man of Jesus Christ is still penetrating your heart and my heart and letting you know in your conscience whether He sees through your phony demeanor. God knows. And if you listen with an honest heart, he'll let you know what he knows. So Saul, on the outside, maybe looks like a great king. He's doing the right things. He's tall, he's strong, he's mighty. He's two years into his reign and he's already rejected. There's another example of Saul that I want us to look at in the 15th chapter. You don't have to turn there. I just want to uh, notice this. Samuel commanded the people and basically gave them a big speech from God about how obedience was all the Lord wanted. If they will obey, that God would always protect them. And one of the commands that Saul had been given was to go and destroy uh, this particular group of people called the Amalekites. 
And Saul, again, in his fleshly carnal wisdom, looking with what his eyes could see on the things around him and concluding what his mind could conclude, did the will of God partially. Was God's will to completely destroy these people? Saul destroys most of them, allows his subjects to keep the good stuff, and brings back the king unharmed. Samuel comes to him because God tells him, I regret that I've set up Saul to be the king because he's turned back from following me and hasn't performed my commandments. And it grieves Samuel and he cried to the Lord all night. <laughs> Could you imagine being the prophet to anoint the first king of Israel and just a couple of years into his reign he's already doing things his own way and rejecting the way of God? Samuel feels responsible. And God tells him, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Basically, take that burden off of yourself, Samuel. Samuel comes to Saul. This is the 15th chapter, 13th verse of First Samuel. And he says, and Saul, Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says to him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. You ever been around any religious people who seem really sincere, but it's a little overboard? It rubs you a little bit the wrong way. It's a little bit out of place. It sounds right. Samuel was a man of God and he saw through this. Saul is acting like he's this great religious guy. Blessed are you. Welcome. Samuel sees through it. He says, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Looked like he did. And Samuel said, <laughs> with practical spiritual wisdom, Well then, why do I hear these sheep? And why do I hear these oxen? And Saul said, They've brought them from the Amalekites, so the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we've utterly destroyed. Listen to the logic of what Saul did. Saul was commanded, Go into this heathen nation, destroy every one of them and everything they possess. Kill all their livestock, kill all their animals, don't bring anything back. Because the separation of God's people from the world was so necessary for the Messiah to come that it had to be utter and complete. Come out from among them and touch not the unclean things, says the Lord, and I will restore you. This was the point. And Saul, again, with his mind, looked and said, Oh man, that's a bunch of good animals we don't need to kill. That's a bunch of good stuff we don't need to waste. Man's wisdom is always faulty compared to the commands of God. If God has commanded you to do something, you must do it whether or not your mind comes up with a better option or better avenue. That's and you know in your spirit, if you know Him, my sheep know my voice, and another will they not follow. When you start following somebody else's voice, you're not following your master, the shepherd, anymore. When you're saved, God speaks to you, and He lets you know what you should do. And when you come up with a better idea in your mind, it is no longer service to the Lord. What Saul did made even more sense than what Samuel commanded. Why, why should we kill all their oxen? we got to go kill our own for sacrifices. Let's keep their best oxen and sacrifice them to the Lord. It's not how God commanded. So Saul, in his mind, came up with an even better religious command than God had given. He lost the kingdom because of it. Ultimately, he lost his life because of it. 
This is the condition of his heart. These are two examples of how Saul approached the job that God had allowed him to have and entrusted him with for that time. He always wanted to do it a better way than the simple way that God commanded. Then Samuel says to Saul, 16th verse, just stay here and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me in this night. And he said unto him, say on. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own sight, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a journey and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Listen, this is how caught up in his own mind he is. Yes, I've obeyed the Lord. I've gone the way which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep, the ox, and the chief of the things. He's saying, we did it, and they kept all the best stuff. What's the problem? Do you understand, when God commands something, it is His way, period, the end. And so many religious people in the world think that you can have Jesus plus a bunch of the other stuff, or Jesus along with a bunch of other things. God has created a way of salvation that's so simple. When God begins to deal with you, He'll let you know with His Holy Spirit. And when He does, repent. And when you repent, and God knows that you have repented because He's the only one who can see your heart, when He knows, He'll let you know that you're forgiven. That is it. And the world takes that simple plan of God and pastes a bunch of other stuff on top. Oh, you need baptism to be saved. You need a priest to be saved. You need to come shake my hand to be saved. You need all this other... No. All you need is forgiveness from God. And when He forgives you, He'll let you know because He's the one forgiving you. I mean, that'd be like... you Take a, take a, take a marriage. I'll take your pastor and, and his wife. Say they have some kind of squabble like people have in marriages and I'm sitting back here watching and I'm, I'm the special visiting evangelist. And I go up to uh, Sister Sandra and I say, don't worry, Jason's forgiven you. What do you think she's going to do to me? She's going to be even madder. Who are you to say my husband's He better come to me himself on his knees and ask. I don't need to be forgiven. He does. God knows. He's the offended party. He has to forgive. Who am I to step in and tell somebody that God has forgiven them? I don't know. Just like I don't know if they have a marital squabble, whether his heart has let go of that grudge, whether her heart has let go of that. I don't know. It's not my job. I can speak the truth. But ultimately the forgiveness is from the offended party. God is the offended party. We've sinned against Him. And He's the only one who can forgive and so the world, just like Saul, Saul is very like Cain. He has his own way, he's going to do things. And God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do evil, then sin lies at your door. It's going to destroy you and consume you. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he told him. And so Saul listens. He says, yeah, that's great. I'm going to add some stuff to it and make it even better. Most of the religious problems in the world came from good-intentioned people trying to make the way of God better. Even more simple or even easier, even faster, because they don't want to wait on the Lord. But the truth is, sometimes true forgiveness takes a lot of repentance and time and brokenness. You know, sometimes when somebody hurts you and offends you and you want to forgive them, you can't just do it snap at the moment because they come up to you and they say, uh, I accept your forgiveness. 
What are you going to say? I haven't forgiven you yet. You can't accept it. That's what people try to do. Come up with a better, easier way, just like Saul was. Now, Saul tells him twice, I did what the Lord wanted. Here's how Samuel responds, 22nd verse. Samuel says, Has the Lord a greatest delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Let me pause and ask us that today. What do you think God wants from you? Does He want you to build religious castles? Or does He simply want your heart? The answer to that is He wants your heart. He doesn't need you to do a bunch of religious stuff. When He has your heart, He'll let you know what things He wants you to do with your life. And whether they seem religious to you or secular to you, He will use them for His glory. God doesn't want us to just do holy activity all the time. He wants us to live our lives in submission to His will. And then everything we do is holy activity. So he says to him, Does the Lord delight more in burnt offerings and sacrifices or in obeying the voice of the Lord? And then he answers it. Because obviously Saul doesn't get it yet. Behold, he says, Listen. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. In this passage, there is a warning to us today as well. There are many times that we've listened to the teachings of God, maybe we've even listened to the promptings of His Holy Spirit, and we've taken part of it in truth and applied it to our lives and come up with our own improved version of what God said He wanted. And if you are that kind of person today, God is saying the same thing to you as He said to Saul through His prophet. Rebellion is just like witchcraft. Stubbornness is just like idol worship. When you take a command of the Lord and improve upon it with your tiny little finite mind... It's just like disobeying. When you say to God, yes, but, it's just like disobeying. When you try to add anything to the command of God, it's just like disobeying. When you try to improve Jesus with anything else, it's just like disobeying. Saul's rejected. Now, the way he responds is similar, again, to how oftentimes people respond now. Many times people um, are sorry, but they're sorry they got caught. They're not really sorry for who they are. Saul comes to Samuel with this overboard religious, blessed are you, welcome, messenger of God, come into my presence. I've done wonderful things for the Lord. And he has two opportunities to come clean. And he's still trying to promote his own religious self-image. And then finally, Samuel tells him in a way that's so clear he can't deny it. And now Saul is sorry. He says, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. You know what? Saul's sorry he got caught and he wants to keep his kingdom. That's, the, that's it. And when God comes to you with His Holy Spirit and He lets you know that you're not okay with Him, that you're a sinner, 
I don't know if I even need to explain that because you'll feel what it feels like when He shows you. When He lets you know that, and by the way, we have religious people, our own little ideas about what sin is and what it means. It's this or that or this thing or that thing, and when sometimes we look at ourselves and think we're okay. But all of us, all of our righteousnesses, plural, are as filthy rags. What can I offer the Lord? Nothing. Except obedience. Except my heart. So I want to move along for the sake of time tonight. Saul is an example of one type of man. He's a man who relies on his carnal eyes. He's a man who relies on the outward appearance of things. He's a man who looks at the circumstances, listens to the instruction of God, weighs both of them one against the other, and then concludes what course of action is best. David was the exact opposite kind of man. And I love him. He was far from perfect. David, at one time, got so caught up in his lust of the moment that he conspired to have a man murdered to try to cover up his sin. And you may say, David sounds even worse than Saul. And maybe when you think about it like that, maybe he was in that moment. But that's kind of the point. David was a man after God's own heart. He still sunk to horrible levels and God forgave him and it wasn't without consequence and it caused all kinds of problems and people are still suffering because of his sin. Let me, just as a side note, if anybody here or listening actually believes this, I've had people tell me what I do is my own choice. It doesn't affect anybody else. The worst thing about your sins is the way, the ways that it hurts the people around you. The decisions you make, the sin you commit reverberates. Like uh, like you throw a, a, a stone into the water and the ripples go out. Your sin ripples go out and affect everybody around you. I've had people, I think they actually believe that their bad choices are only affecting them. What I do with my life, who cares if I die early? No. The sins you commit, you have to pay for. And God can forgive you. But the consequences of what you did during that time that you were willfully sinning, your body still has to pay for. So David's sin wasn't without consequence. He had to pay for it. And there was punishment. But he was a man who had a heart after God. And that horrible sin that he sunk to wasn't his continual heart as it was with Saul. Saul over and over and over did things his own way. David started out... With this anointing by the um, priest coming to him. And you just, just picture, I read the whole thing, but let me just take a minute to let us dwell on the story. Here comes Samuel. Saul's still king right now. He comes to Jesse and, and, and says, uh, one of your kings, one of your sons, uh, I'm going to set apart. And so he presents them top down. Oldest, next, 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 next. And Samuel's going, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. This took a long time. David was so small in his culture and in the eyes of his father that he wasn't even there for the meeting. It was like he wasn't even one of his sons. And it was like that in that culture that once you got young enough in the order of sons, you're more like a servant. David's out taking care of the sheep so all the other more important sons can be there for the meeting. 
He wasn't even part of the consideration. But God doesn't look on the outward appearance of things. God looks on the heart. God doesn't see as man sees. And so Samuel's there. And to this point, I don't know that he really understands all of what's going on. And he keeps saying, what about your next one? What about your next one? He gets done. He says, don't you have any more? He says, well, I've got this other son. But he's out taking care of the sheep. Samuel says, bring him. We're not going to be finished until you do. And when he brings him, the Lord speaks to the spirit of Samuel and says, this is the one. Sometimes God has a job for us and we don't know the full import. We don't know the details of it until we're there. In fact, all through Scripture we see this. God tells somebody to go a direction and they don't know why until later. I wonder how many of us would have walked away after son two or three or four or five. Well, Lord, you must have been wrong. I guess I misheard you. Or I wonder how many of us would have thought in our own spirit and analyzed and said, well, maybe this is the Lord. Uh, Maybe it should be uh, son number three or son number five. And then we jump on it in faith. Claim it in faith. No, he did none of that. He waited, like Brother Jason preached Sunday morning, he waited on the Lord until the Spirit said, this is the one. Then he selected David. Here's how humble of a man David was. This is how much his heart was for the Lord. And the Lord, when he told Samuel, I've selected another man who has a heart after me, David's life showed that that was his heart. He was anointed to be king. You know what he did when he got done? He went back to servant status. He went back to the field, not even with his own sheep, with his father's sheep. And we see his heart. We see what kind of valor he had in his spirit. We see what kind of boldness and courage that he had inside of him that God was strengthening and building into him. We see the time that he was able to spend with the Lord. What do you do when you're in a field of sheep and there's no smartphones and no Facebook and no internet? And he wasn't carrying books around. They didn't have a printing press. I doubt he had a scroll. He had his shepherd's staff and maybe a sling and maybe some type of uh, uh, jacket to keep warm. You know what he did all that time out there? He spent a whole lot of time thinking, meditating, looking at the creation of God, understanding his own heart and his own frailty and his own inability. And some of the time he spent killing a lion and a bear. And so he has an opportunity. I'm not going to be a whole lot longer, but I want to finish contrasting Saul and David. He has an opportunity to serve God, and he doesn't even know that the opportunity is there yet because it comes in the form of him being given the job of a servant once again. His father says to him, take your brothers some food. They're encamped against the Philistines. Go down there. So he takes some food. They give him a hard time. They say, we know the naughtiness of your heart. We know your pride. We know you came down here just to spy out the battle. You don't deserve to be here. You're just the youngest son. You should be taking care of the sheep. And David, probably just like Joseph, is like, what have I done? I did what my father commanded. He was given the job of a servant. He obeyed. David continues to show an obedient spirit, submissive spirit. He brings the food to them. He's there, and while he's there... God presents him with an opportunity of service unlike any other. 
His spirit wells up within him. He looks at what's going on. He looks at this big old Philistine criticizing the people of God. And he says to him, he says out loud to the people around him, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then he looks at all these men who are trembling around him. And unlike Saul, who took it upon himself to make a sacrifice that he wasn't authorized to make, David makes a plea from his heart and says, Is there not a cause? Sometimes I think the Lord waits many, many years for a man who believes that his purpose can be accomplished. And David was that kind of man. And David, word gets to Saul. They say, here's this man that says he can fight Goliath. Well, nobody else is going to. So for some reason, Saul lets him go. They had uh, some familiarity at this point. And Saul tries to give him his armor, but Saul is, again, head and shoulders taller. (laughs) David puts it on and he says, I'm not used to this. I've not used it. It hasn't been proven. What does he do? He sets aside the things that the natural eye can see. He sets aside worldly logic. He says, yes, it's smart for people when they go to battle to put on this armor, but this is not the way I go to battle. And Saul basically tells him, you're crazy. You know what David says? So much boldness. I love this. He says, don't worry. Your servant was keeping his father's sheep. And a lion came and I killed him. And a bear came and I killed him. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like those animals. Sometimes religious people have this really strange notion that what God wants from us is to appear more humble than we really are to appear less confident when, than we really are. David demonstrated complete confidence in God, boldness, and also complete humility. He's still maintaining the attitude of a servant when he says, I was out keeping my father's sheep. But then he has the complete confidence of God. You know what real humility is? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. David is not interested in his image that he's presenting to Saul. He's interested in his God is being blasphemed by a pagan that's like a dog in his mind. That's all he cares about. He's not worried about his life. He's not worried about anything except the glory of the name of the Lord. And so he doesn't have time for worldly fear. He doesn't have time for his flesh to tremble. All he can think about is, God, you're being blasphemed and I want it to stop. And God empowers him to do it. I'll finish up the story we're probably all familiar with if you've been in church. David goes out to battle. He's dressed like a little shepherd. He's got his sling. He's got his stones. He goes out to the taunts and insults of this Philistine warrior who has been a man of war longer than David's been alive. He's killed so many people. David goes out there, he slings his sling, he throws it, hits him in the forehead. This big old giant falls down. David takes his own sword, chops his head off. He was a man. He was bold. And we see in David. Now, what happened after this? (laughs) I love this. His heart versus Saul's heart. 
Saul has been told at least twice that he's been rejected as being king. He hasn't voluntarily stepped down. He hasn't asked Samuel, what do I need to do about it? He's still trying to assert his authority. And in the meantime, he's getting meaner and meaner and more bitter and more bitter and more encompassed with the powers of darkness. Have you noticed that when people around you, when they try to keep pretending to be doing the Lord's work and God's blessing has been removed from them, sometimes a pastor stays in one place too long and you can see that their messages just don't have the power and authority that they used to. And week after week, they come and try to drum it up with emotional energy and it's not the same. You can tell. Like I told you last night, you know what's real. You can tell. And so Saul's trying to hold on to his, uh, what he believes is his rightful place, and he's getting worse and worse, and he's actually tried to murder David on a couple of occasions. And even after David kills this Philistine, he goes back to Saul and plays music for him to make him feel better. He's still serving as a servant. He has been set apart and anointed as king and he's still there as the smallest servant before the sitting king doing whatever he wants. But you know what David's learning in the meantime? How the inner chambers work. How the king's court works. What goes on in the palace. God is using even this subservient position to train him for his place of future leadership. Even though he wasn't a trained soldier, he used sheep keeping and killing lions and bears to train him for war. God doesn't look as we look. God doesn't see as man sees. God looks on the heart. God knows what job you can do. And He has selected each one of us for a purpose and a calling that is His. And He knows no matter what your stature is, no matter whether it seems like you fit, God knows. That's why He doesn't always select the best speakers to become preachers. He chooses people based on their heart, those that can be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to proclaim His message. And He knows what job He has for you. We see this contrast continue between Saul and David until finally Saul is killed in battle. He's always chasing David. He's always trying to destroy him. And David's heart and his heart for the Lord is shown over and over again. He even has an opportunity to kill Saul. He cuts off his a piece of his clothing, and even feels guilty about it. And says, God forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. See, David could have taken... That's what they did back then. I mean, any other kingdom, David has been told he's going to be king, he would have just went and killed Saul. But he said, no, God has a plan and a purpose, he has decreed and declared, and I'm going to sit back until he tells me it's time. This is what I want to close with, brothers and sisters, those of you who know the Lord. Sometimes God has put in your heart a plan and a purpose that He has for your life. And sometimes you mistake the timetable. I've noticed most of the time the promises of God don't come with a time frame. God didn't tell Abraham, I'll make your descendants as the sand of the sea in your lifetime. He didn't tell Jacob, who became Israel, I'll bring the Messiah through you in your lifetime. And many times God puts a promise in our hearts. And we grow weary of waiting because we think the time frame is nearing. But He's faithful to perform. You know what faith is? Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. Faith at its essence, strip away all the religious ideas. Faith 
is trusting that God will do what He told you He'll do. When He saved your soul, He spoke to your spirit, I'll take care of you. Didn't He? That's what I felt, peace. And I knew God said, I'll take care of you. It wasn't with words, but that's what I felt. You'll be okay. You're okay now. You're mine. What a simple, profound, lifelong, in fact, eternal promise. And there's nothing I can do to make me lose that. I'm sealed to the day of redemption. Jesus Christ is keeping my salvation. People say, you think you can lose your salvation? Yeah, if I could keep my salvation, I could lose it. I lose everything. But Jesus is keeping it. He said, those you've given me, I've kept, and none of them is lost. Except the son of perdition who wasn't ever one of his anyway. The decrees of God are eternal. If God's told you something, He'll do it. I don't feel the need to to really shift the focus to the lost right now. I feel the need to close with that. Those of you who know Him, what God has promised, He will perform. What He's put in your heart will be accomplished. You might not understand the time frame. You trust the Lord. Do you trust the Lord with the time frame too? That's my message tonight. God looks on the heart.